Welcome to the Idea Week podcast, where investors and entrepreneurs share their wisdom and insights into investing, business, and life. The Idea Week podcast is brought to you by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Members of MOI Global enjoy special access to Idea Week, the annual winter summit that brings together investors and entrepreneurs in one-of-a-kind St. Moritz, Switzerland. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's a great pleasure to welcome to this conversation Glenn Surowick, Managing Member and Portfolio Manager of GDS Investments based in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Glenn has been a member of MOI Global for quite some time and we've had the pleasure of benefiting from his wisdom as well as ideas in the past and I really look forward to this conversation as well. Uh, we're going to talk fairly broadly, so not uh, necessarily go into specific ideas, but um, there's a lot, a lot that investors uh, have to deal with, uh, particularly now in an internet-centric world. And uh, so Glenn and I thought we'd, uh, we'd speak about controlling emotions and temptation and then uh, perhaps delving to some other topics as well. So, Glenn, um, when you uh, suggested that topic, uh, what was kind of front and center on your mind? Well, I, I think it's it's uh, probably not. It's so important, and I don't think that investors talk about it enough. And I think, you know, I, I like to study failure. I like to study both, you know, ideas that worked for, for me and ideas that didn't or maybe ideas that worked a little bit, but should have worked a lot. Um, and, you know, I, I think that controlling emotions, I certainly in an internet centric world is very difficult yet. It's the, the number one driver of long-term success. And I, I always, I come back to a couple of quotes. One is fairly recent by Warren Buffett, where he said that, that temperament is far more important than IQ. And the other one is, you know, one from Jesse Livermore who said that, you know, men who can, both be right and sit tight are uncommon. And I think that of those two, sitting tight is far more difficult uh, than, than being right. And I think in the past, I always looked at it, you know, I kind of divided the, the, the period from stock picking versus stock owning and how being a good stock owner is far more difficult. And I think the internet makes it harder to avoid all of this temptation. Um, and I think, and when I think of temptation, I think of the, the temptation to not react to the daily news cycle or the temptation to know everything about every industry or even the temptation of short stocks or even use leverage. And I, I think the entire system is really built around around the short term in terms of how news is reported, in terms of how companies are researched. And I think today more than ever, I think there's just huge, tremendous value in thinking past today's noise and thinking beyond the next few quarters. Yeah, that's a really good point. It seems like there's uh, so much noise out there these days, and it's hard to resist the noise because it comes packaged in uh, such shiny uh, new ways, uh, whether it's through social networks or what have you. So 
um, how do you stay disciplined in that regard? Have you implemented any routines to help you filter out the noise? Yeah, and before I answer that, I, I want to just point out that, and, and I always, when I mention this to you know, clients, prospective clients, neighbors, friends, it, it, it's astounding. And I, I, I may have, um, I'm not sure exactly if Fidelity did the study or not, but I remember Monish Pabrai mentioned it in one of, I think it was one of his Google speeches where, you know, they went back and looked at a lot of their own accounts to determine which ones did the best over, you know, over maybe a 10 year period. And, you know, the accounts where the owners actually forgot that the account existed actually did the best, which I just find, I mean, it's it's not surprising when you think about it through one sense, but it just, it really, I think, drives home the point of how as individuals, if we can just get out of our own way sometimes, and sometimes just forgetting that the account is even there in the first place is a great way to get out of out of your own way. Um is is you know we are our own worst enemy in a lot of ways. So how how do I I think getting back to your question. So so how do I protect myself against short term misbehavior? Um, I think you have to really put a fence around your daily routine, and I'm very protective about you know what I do, what I read. Um, I think you know I I don't wake up every day and turn my computer on. I don't uh, I'm not following stock quotes. Um, you know, and I certainly extend that to just overall phone usage, internet usage. I mean, I'm very old school with, you know, how I read, what I read. I still get newspapers um, because I found myself years ago that even under the best of circumstances, I could have great intentions and I would get on online and then, you know, inevitably uh, I, I would get sucked into something else and it would just become a big time hog and Either I'd be checking email, so I, I try to kind of set up dedicated times during the day where I'm doing email or researching if I and, and just making sure that I'm I'm focused in, in what I'm doing. And I and I think really the the one thing that I try to do that's slightly different and probably unusual for a money manager is I I do not like to keep score with any single position until I've at least owned it for three years. And I, I think that's a really because what I found is that I, you know, the, I think the stock picking piece of investment analysis is re, obviously it's really, really important. Um, but I think all of the factors that kind of go into why you, you bought something, a lot of the, a lot of times during the ownership phase, we start to question, we start to second guess and we start to abandon things. And volatility creeps in and we, um, you know, we, we just, at times we start abandoning what I think is, is rational and what works. So, um, I kind of have an informal, uh, you know, just in, in, in sort of an informal, um, way of dealing with clients where if, if they're down on a position and they haven't owned it for three years, then we probably don't discuss it in the context of gains and losses until at least three years. And it seems to work for me and it seems to work for them because it really gets them to appreciate the fact that a lot of times it does take at least three or four years for an idea to play out. 
And I went through this with, you know, GM or Fiat or Bank of America, you know, or even Overstock. Or it just, it just takes time. And you know, I think um, you know th- that's a consideration that I think we all need to appreciate. And at least it gets them disconnected from maybe whatever fears they have about the position today. Um, anyway, that's that's kind of what I do. Well, that's fascinating that you say um, it actually works and clients uh, accept that because I think uh, very few managers have tried that. Uh, I think many would love to do it, but I I think their um, sense would be there's no way that would work with clients. So maybe explain um, what have you done in your communications with clients or setting expectations that uh, helped you to get them on the same page in that regard? Well, I, you have to constantly reinforce the point that it takes time for good ideas to play out. And as much as we want to inject some some different component, some speed component into the making money part of, of the relationship, um, you ultimately have to control the controllables. And, and I, you know, and, and, and I think what I try to do is uh, I am trying to find a handful of great ideas, you know, every six months, maybe even every year. And I'm trying to take fairly concentrated positions in those ideas. And I would love for those ideas to play out in year one or year two or year three. And I think clients would too. Um, but the, the reality is, is that it, sometimes it takes longer. And I, what I try to do up front is I try to give them historical examples where you could have been directionally right and just early on a particular view, whether it's 1996 and Alan Greenspan talking about irrational exuberance, and you had to sit through uh, part of 96, 97, 98, 99, until we topped out in March of 2000. So, and you could have been right about the mortgage crisis in 2004, 2005, but it really didn't unwind until maybe, you know, 2008. And so um, I, I think you have to do it on, on that macro level. And I think with clients that have been with me for longer than a few years, you, you can always point back to success. And even with big cap companies, I mean, here you have, and I'll just use Bank of America only because I, we've talked about it in the past, and and it, it's now kind of come full circle in some ways. Where if you look over the last six, seven years, you, you had to put up with a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different fears. You had to put up with, you know, buying it at ten. Um, and watching it go to five, you know, even after the best investor in the world, you know, put $5 billion into it, uh, of which, you know, quite a bit was an equity component. And someone who publicly was very, very bullish long-term about Bank of America's prospects and what Brian Moynihan was doing. But you you had to wait a while for, for everything to kind of come full circle. Now Bank of America is at, you know, 27 and change. Um but, you know, I think that that ride wasn't always easy. And, and so, you know, I think that when you can go back in time with clients and say, today's idea is just like, you know, this idea and offer tangible evidence that, you know, that, that it works. Look, we went through this before. We went on the same roller coaster. 
and we came out and we were okay. Now, the trick is with newer clients, because you don't necessarily have something tangible with them. Now, you do have a track record and you can point them to previous success, but it's a little different when someone experiences that firsthand versus just knowing about it. And what I try to do is just try to really, in that initial conversation, when you're sitting down and you're, you know, they have ground rules for engagement, you have ground rules for engagement, and there's a little bit of kind of back and forth, there's a little bit of dance going on. And you, you ultimately, what you're trying to do is funnel up to the decision, is this the right partnership? And it's not foolproof and it's not 100%, but I found that if you can kind of get to that place and I've lost clients. I mean, don't, I've lost clients where year one just didn't go well and maybe year two didn't go well and year three and year f- four were spectacular, except they didn't stick around for year three and year four. But what what I've tried to do is run the business for the clients that have stuck around for year three and year four. Because at the end of the day, those are my, my most valuable clients. Those are the ones that really trust what I'm doing. Those are the ones that can really you know, give me the leeway, give me the space that really trust the process. Um, and, um, you know, th- those are the ones that I'm obligated to reward within, you know, the, the business model that I've created. And, I, and I'm not selling some get rich quick business model. I'm selling, you know, let's get, let's get wealthy inch by inch. Let's get wealthy through, uh, a series of, of decisions that are well thought out that I can execute well. Um, and, and over time it's going to work well in terms of how we get there from here to there. You know, sometimes you got to lose 20% before you make 200%. It's just the way that this business works. And how often do you communicate with clients in, in letters? Uh, so in letters, I communicate twice a year. And I, I think I've tried both formats. I've tried the quarterly approach and I've tried twice a year. And I think the the, the twi- two times a year seems to be the sweet spot between making sure that they're not in the dark, making sure that, hey, I'm still here. You know, there's some things that we should, you know, that, that I, I want you to at least be informed about. Um, but again, it, it reinforces the fact that if I was writing every week or every quarter, I think that that would get them to somehow back to a short, shorter term world. Um, and, and frankly, I don't have a lot to say every quarter. I mean, I know that that seems to be what most investors do and what most companies do and money managers. And I find that quarter to quarter, the stuff of business is just a lot slower moving than my ability to write about it. So I, I think two, two times is, is kind of where I like to be in, in, in any given year. So I write a mid-year letter that comes out usually the first week in July, and I, I write a year-end letter that comes out generally the first week in January. You talked about um, how you know the internet um especially has contributed to this short termism that's in the market and uh, so it would seem that maybe there is a greater opportunity than ever for people who are truly long-term oriented to find those 
uh, long-term gems when the short-term is looking bleak. Um, maybe elaborate a little bit on that, and I'll just throw a wrinkle in there um, that I've been thinking about, which is um, when you are focused on the long-term, it seems like that's also gotten a little bit harder in light of the fact that so many industries and companies and business models that have traditionally been thought of kind of safe over the long term um, have been disrupted or ab are about to get disrupted. So how is that ability to truly know where a business is going to be in 10 or 20 years, um, you know, been affected in your mind and how do you invest for the long term today okay so let, let's kind of tackle this uh so i i think if i understand your first question um so i i think at the end of the day you know you you had talked about and and, and about the internet and you know the fact that it kind of magnifies what what are these sort of long-standing emotions and behavioral influence that, that people have to, and, and I think, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think if, if you look at the average investor today and you look at how they use the internet, they're, they're not, what, what they're doing is they're setting up their portfolio and they're, they're, they got, you know, lots of news that's coming in and, you know, that news, those, that, that commentary may or may not be well researched it could be cherry picked it could be just focusing too much or it could be accurate but it might be focused too much on today and then there's the the, the issue of just hey maybe that's already discounted into the price and i i think it, it's just human nature that it at the end of the day if you're bombarded with lots of different information and it's saying something that's different than what your money manager, or even if, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, or even what you, you think, then it's really, really hard to withstand, you know, that kind of pressure. And we're just not wired to, um, we're not wired emotionally to withstand uh, alone, stand alone, and in, in a world that says, hey, listen, by the way, you know, you, you should own this company because it's, it's, it's this, that, and the other, and it's, you know, it's all the bad stuff. And so I think, you know, inevitably what happens is that people, people tend to tend to react. Right. And, and so what, what you're seeing is that, you know, there, there are fewer and fewer universe of investors that can actually own a stock for a quarter, let alone six months, let alone a year, let alone two or three years. You know, if, if you, you look under the hood, the average investor is just constantly, you know, turnover has gone up over the last 15, 20 years. And it, it's not coincidental that it's actually gone up at a time when, you know, trading is easier. It's cheaper. And there's a lot of marketing that says that, you know, you need to do it yourself because not because you're actually good at this. And it's because it's cheap. You know, you, you can go trade for you know, $4. And, and so it's got people really refocused and think that somehow, hey, let's buy this. And then in, in a week, let's buy something else. And then a week later, let's buy something else. So um, I, we, we know from studies and, and it, that, that that is not a winning, that's not a winning strategy. It's never been a winning strategy. And certainly the internet's got, not going to somehow 
change those laws. It, it just doesn't work. Um, so how do I invest in a world, which I think is your, your second point, in a world that, that where, you know, the, the technology obviously is making a lot of longstanding businesses and industries obsolete. And, and so um, I think certainly looking out 10 to 20 years is, is probably too long. Um, but looking out a week or two is obviously too short. So I, I think there, there's a middle ground there. And I think um, I still think that the stuff most businesses is cyclical, not secular. Um, I think that there are there are plenty of businesses that are being destroyed, but also being created because of the internet. And so I think you, you have to you have to factor that into to me that's like one more thing as part of your due diligence process and so in, in a way it hasn't i wouldn't say it's changed the way that i look at companies in other words i think the process is similar i mean i i certainly have a very long list of things i'm looking for in companies um but i think you know the world is is certainly moving quicker um, and if anything, I think it's made some companies vulnerable, um, but it's also sort of created opportunities too. I mean, if you look at Microsoft, I think in the last 20 years, Microsoft kind of went from vulnerability to kind of opportunity because of kind of the, the same forces in play, you know, where maybe, maybe some of the legacy businesses were under assault, um, you know, but at the same time, they were able to kind of overcome that in a way that was very unexpected. So, I mean, I'm just, and I think there are examples of that where, you know, I think there's creative destruction, but I also think there's opportunity uh, on the other side of the coin. And and so I, I think what I what I look for are, you know, companies have a longstanding history of leadership, and I certainly look at where the industry is going and, and um, you know, at least over the medium term, and if I can find industries that have fairly stable uh, market share, at least amongst the, you know, maybe the top two or three players, um, you know, typically I think you can at least project out a couple of years uh, and assume that, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to have quite a bit of relevancy over the next three, four, five years. But yeah, I, it, it's certainly harder, but it doesn't make, I think, the idea of investing for the long term, to me, it doesn't diminish uh, that value and doesn't make me more short-term oriented. I just think it makes me more alert to certain certain factors that are in play. And I think, you know, today's technology was, um, it, it, it's, it's, you know, I think 20 years ago and 50 years ago and 100 years ago, I think there was other things that were making other industry is obsolete. And so I think you, you've always had to be uh, aware of those things and you have to build that into whatever uh, analysis that you're doing. How do you look at the technology sector in general in terms of, um, I know you are a truly a, a value investor and uh, do not get swayed by the latest uh, trends or emotions in the market. But are you trying to expand your circle of competence? Are you looking at technology uh, and, and trying to find opportunity where you can actually benefit from the technology changes? 
happening or do you mostly focus on avoiding um, the companies that'll get crushed by technology? Yeah, so um, I, I so in the past, I've owned, I mean, a lot of the, the quote, leading technology number uh, companies, I've owned probably every one of them at one time. And I, you know, there was a time where Netflix wasn't Netflix, and there was a lot of uncertainty around what they were doing. Um, my mistake with a lot of the companies was, um, was underappreciating the fact that this was a secular story. And so I think that the hardest thing in investing, there's two things. When obviously the stock works against you and it goes down, it's like, okay, what, what do you do? Because there's a lot of second guessing that goes on. But I think the other trap is if it goes up quickly, then what do you do? Especially when it's, you know, probably has a, a, a very, um, you know, strong chance of, of a long runway of growth. I've owned Amazon in the past. Um, I, I have owned Apple in the past. Um, I own Google in the past. Um, so I, I'm not averse to technology. I think what I am sensitive to when, when you're at that intersection where you've made a lot of money and I think what's being discounted is something different and it goes from you know, really what is sort of like a maybe a company that, that looks strong, I guess, in, in, from a traditional undervaluation perspective, and there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of concern, and maybe it's about product cycle or maybe it's about short-term margins or maybe it's about subscriber growth rates in the case of Netflix or changing technology in the case of, in the case of Netflix where they're going from, you know, a, a DVD mail-based system to um, to online. Uh, it, once that uncertainty evaporates, um, I, I think I need to do a better job of understanding what's going to happen in the next chapter. So I think that's really been my, my, my mistake, if you want to call it that, is I, I think there, there was like a 5X and I made a 1X. And I think that's the frustration is that um, I think there's some models where it's in, in, in really instinctive, whether, and we talked about Republic Bank, but the predecessor company, Commerce Bank. I was never tempted to sell that because to me, the path to growth was, was very, very well defined. And you had an industry of, you know, just poorly run banks and, and average competitors that were really doing something a lot different than commerce. And so it was very easy for me to hold that, you know, many, 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 many years. Um, Technology is different. It's hard for me. I think once that initial uncertainty lifts and the company gets revalued to something more respectable and optimism returns, um, I think the lines within technology, I think, are blurry and getting even more so. And I think that I, I, I do struggle with that. And, you know, obviously it would be hard for me to buy Amazon right now. Um, and, you know, in the last year, obviously it's been, been a, you know, it's been on a great run and it's hard for me to own Netflix now because there doesn't seem to be this cloud of uncertainty. It's like, where, where's the variant perception? 
you know, as Michael Steinhardt always talks about. Um, but I'm not averse. Um, I, I'm certainly mindful that they are giant, giant vacuum cleaners and they're taking away market share from a lot of different competitors. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I, I certainly don't really want to be, I don't want to own a competitor either long or short. I don't short, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, right now I, I, my positions in technology are more kind of the, the outer out of favor names that are, I think, slightly misunderstood, um, you know, but still connected to some of the major growth drivers over the next five or 10 years. And, and they're out there. I mean, it's, it, the, the market environment is weird where I think, you know, people think just because the market's hitting all time highs that somehow things aren't doing poorly, but we, we know that's not the case. I mean, it, it doesn't, you can pick up the wall street journal and, you know, for everyone, um, Amazon or, or, you know, Google or Netflix that's hitting an all-time high, there's a general electric that's down 30%, so. Also, you mentioned um, passive versus active investing. Um, when we talked about uh, today's call, uh, that's obviously uh, a very interesting um, conversation as well weigh in on that a little bit if you would and uh let us know how you look at that um i look at it as cyclical not secular so it seems to me the last time this argument came up was in the late 90s and i think um i, I think at the end of the day uh, i think there's a lot of passive investors that are drinking the kool-aid and think that somehow this is an asset class or or an approach to investing that will just do well all the time. And I, I think it didn't end well for passive investors in the last, you know, really major bubble in the late 90s, and it's not going to end well for them now. And I, I think we're in an environment, if you have systemic underpricing across a lot of different industries, yeah, I I, I get that, that the lowest cost, most efficient way to get exposure is through a you know passive, passively managed fund. Uh, absent those conditions, um, I think you're better off finding the companies or the sectors that are cheap and avoiding the ones that are expensive. And I you know so I, I think there's a couple other issues that that get under. Reported so I so what one issue is just the fact that th th this is a product that has limited utility, and it's a, essentially a bull market product. It works really really well when there's broad based undervaluation. But um, the other issue is that I think it's it's passive investors and and the way that a lot of these firms, uh, they're asset gatherers and they they're they're very very late to hold, um, corporate inefficiency or or or, you know, bad governance accountable. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, they are friends of very, um, uh, of, of lousy management teams. And I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot. I think that if you look at the governance departments in a lot of these firms, now they've since gotten better because, you know, other areas of the market have put pressure on them. 
Um, but if you look at their voting record, their voting record is essentially they they vote with management. Um, and so I I just I find that um, it's hard for me to get behind an idea like that. And 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 I would just say that I think Warren Buffett has been unfairly thrown into this issue. And I think his original comment had more to do with the fact that I think when he passes on, that that he's sort of advising his family that this is the way to go. And I, I so I think that's a reasonable strategy if you want to put things on autopilot. But I, I, I come back to the point where you have two ways of investing. You, you could use the blueprint that Mr. Buffett himself used and that works really, really well. And he used it to generate a lot of wealth. Or you could use the formula that he's advising his family to use after he passes on. And I, I'd rather invest the way that, that he has done successfully for the last seven decades as opposed to invest in a way that it's just, I, I think it's with, with a little bit of research, um, given that the upside is so great for, you know, finding a manager that can outperform. I, I, I think it's, I, I don't, I think it's worth spending a little extra time um, as opposed to guaranteeing yourself mediocrity. That's just, and I know it's not a popular uh, perspective, but I, I, I think it's very doable. I think there's plenty of inefficiency in the market. There's lots of things to read. There's lots of great books. There is a well-defined, successful path for investors to follow. And I, I think it's worth trying to either figure that out on your own, or if you don't have the time, finding uh, someone who can do that on your behalf because they're out there all over the place. In fact, your, your, you know, MOI global has identified a lot of those managers. The only thing they need to do is somehow get connected into that world. And, you know, that alone would give them access to lots of different managers at lots of different sizes, focusing on lots of different areas. And not to uh, kind of read into what Buffett has said or try to guess uh, what he was getting at, but it seems to me that um, passive investing or indexing really has, in general, very poor competitors, meaning a lot of active managers simply do not do what's required to outperform and then when you layer the fees on top of that the competition to uh, passive investing is just so poor on average that um, you know someone who is not knowledgeable may in fact be better off uh, going with an index rather than with you know the asset management department of some large bank or who knows what um, but then there's that whole slew of great managers um, like yourself and, and others in our community and, and elsewhere uh, who follow the, uh, the value investing principles. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe that's a distinction to draw as well, uh, that if you can find those managers, then passive investing doesn't make sense, but otherwise maybe it does on an after fee basis. Well, I, yeah, so I, I agree with that. I, I guess 
so let, let's maybe use the money ball example in, in baseball. And so Billy Bean was able to identify inefficiencies and he was able to, you know, use a relatively small payroll to build a very, very successful franchise. And, you know, I, and so if you were buying a baseball team and and you wanted to kind of do it in a way that, that created value and that operated differently, just because the whole league is filled with a lot of, people that are doing things wrong, that doesn't mean that you don't have the capability to find the winning formula. I mean, I, that, I think the, the, the idea that somehow the industry, 80% of the industry is doing things the wrong way versus 20%, I, I think that's not just investing. I, I think that's how sports teams are managed and how companies operate. And I mean, I think you can kind of extend that almost to, to everything. Um, but it doesn't make the pursuit of that 20% overly daunting that you should just say, eh, I'll just, I'll just kind of, whatever, I'll just give up and I'll, I'll just, I'm resigned to the fact that I'm just going to own an index. I, I so I, cause I, I do think that it's a very achievable goal for people to go out and, and find people that and and, it, and I, I understand that that you know Wall Street has always been littered with with people that underperform and I think a lot of those numbers are kind of distorted because I think if you kind of go off Wall Street a little bit, um, you know, then I think the numbers improve. But I, I think again, this is one of those things with with the internet where it's not as though that these firms aren't reachable; they're very accessible and. You know, I I kind of question whether in a world where you can actually do something that's so much better and the path to 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 getting there is very doable. Um, I mean, so so let's let's look at, at the process that led, you know, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett to, you know, Teddy Wexler and Todd Combs. I mean, it was, you know, they, they kind of found each other. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know that it, it you know, you, you, you found each other and they, they wanted people that I think kind of fit within their culture and that could outperform. And, um, he allocated 10 billion a piece and it's worked out really, really well. And my guess is that it happened over a couple lunches. And so I, I, I think there's just what I have what I have seen is that there are managers all over the place that are hungry for an opportunity, and I think that um, they have an absolute winning formula that they're very very capable. Um, and I I think you know I think the internet I'm not saying it's easy, but you know there there's long leaves out there, there's sequoias out there, there's um, there's a lot of really really high caliber institutions that have been around for a long period of time. And I think, you know, certainly there's a lot of, uh, you know, middle middle type money managers and smaller managers, um, you know, almost in every zip code that have a really good foundation when it comes to picking stocks and have a track record of success. And I think that if, with, with a little bit of work, I think there's a lot of reward and I think it's worth pursuing. And I guess we'll also need to see what happens once uh, there is actually 
some sort of a real downturn in the indices, you know, when the passive investing game starts delivering massive losses, uh, what happens then? Exactly. I, I think that, that people are removed, far enough removed from uh, a really bad bear market in index investing that they're, they're, they're just, they, they think it's a one-way trade. They think it's, you know, something that is structurally better. And I don't know, I mean, I, I think cost is important, but if you're just picking things based on cost, and this is any product, I don't, um, I, I, I think you kind of get what you pay for in, in some situations. Yeah, I mean, if you want to just, if you want to guarantee yourself mediocrity, then, then but I, I think valuation has to be at the center of what you're doing. And to me, I don't think that equity investing is any different than, uh, you know, investing in any other asset class where uh, if, if you're being advised to just simply throw money into certain things because they're low cost and there's no valuation component, I, I don't, I, I, that's, that's just not a strategy I can get behind. Yeah, and it's also a structure that simply cannot work once it becomes too popular because then the whole purpose of capital markets gets compromised which is to allocate capital efficiently and if you're exactly. just doing it in a dumb uh, indexing way you're not discriminating at all between the good businesses and the bad and so forth so it seems like it's something that can be tangential to a well-functioning market, but it can never be the driver. Yeah, and I, I think what, what what bothers me is that, you know, the way they rebalance, the average dollar is essentially buying high and selling low. And that that is so disconnected from what I know works. It just, it, it it's, it's just not how people make money investing. It, it's, I understand it's cheap. I understand it's accessible. I understand the allure. Um, I, I think I, I just come back to the perspective that the tools are out there that if you spend a little bit of time, um, you, you, the, the, the reward for finding a better way is out there. And, and I think, um, I, I, I think that that's what, average investors should do. I, I think that they, they should find someone locally or find someone that they trust. And, you know, I think that they should uh, certainly hold them accountable. Um, but I, I don't know that indexing is, is, um, is, is I, don't, I don't think the merit of indexing is so strong. And I love the argument is that people always say, well, geez, it, it's the alternatives. Well, I, you know, so they don't really say that the product itself is great. It's more that the alternatives, no, there's no alternatives. And I would just say, you know, getting back to our earlier discussion, I, we, we, the, the industry has been filled with crudded nonsense uh, for, for over a hundred years. I mean, that, that's never going to change. So if you're looking for somehow for Wall Street to kind of shape up and and limit their the, the number of investment products and make sure that, that's just not the way it works. I mean there there is a proliferation of mutual funds and ETFs and all these other products 
And that, that's not going to go away anytime soon. You know, Wall Street is, was put on earth to sell whatever the public's going to buy. Um, anyway, I mean, I, so, so look at your, your business. And I think compared to you, you were globally able to find people that, um, had a differentiated product and that, you know, they, they all were bound by this, this value investing principle. You, you were able to do that. And I, 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 this, this isn't, you know, we're not climbing Everest here. I mean, we're money managers. We're not, I don't want to just overcomplicate things. And I think that if, if you were able to do that on a global scale, I think that other investors can certainly do that as well. Well, Glenn, uh, thank you so much for the time and another uh, fascinating conversation. I, I truly appreciate it. Of course, John. Pleasure. And I look forward to uh, having another opportunity in the future. Likewise. Thanks, John. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Idea Week podcast, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global the membership community of intelligent investors. Learn more at moiglobal.com.